Your money can do more. Brought to you by Stanlib. Invest for more certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib. Imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Whistleblower shot dead in her driveway. Unemployment skyrockets to record highs. Education system in a state of shambles. These are the headlines in newspapers just this week as we are recording this episode. But in truth, they could be from any week in South Africa. So how does one confidently invest in such a country? Plagued by corruption, high unemployment, service delivery issues and political uncertainty. How stable is South Africa and what does this mean for long-term investment? What are the positives to investing in South Africa and its future? Welcome to the second episode of Stanlib's Your Money Can Do More podcast series. My name is Bongani Bingwa. As always, I'm joined by Stanlib's chief economist, Kevin Lings. But also today, we have political analysts, Dr. Rolf Matecha and Melanie Favut. The six-part podcast aims to promote the idea that there are many ways to invest. Today, the focus is on your money wants to bank on South Africa. So let's dive straight into it. Kevin, it's obvious there's not a lot of good news for South Africa at the moment. Uh, We know it well enough. But are there any silver linings to our many, many clouds? Hi, Bongani. I think there are. I think we're starting to see some of those emerge. Obviously, uh, we're looking for policy direction to be a little bit more emphatic for implementation of policy to gain momentum and to see some of the changes starting to reflect in things like employment, economic growth, and I guess a general uplift in confidence in the country. I'm certainly heartened by some of the policy reforms that are being pushed through at the moment. I think some of those reforms reflect the fact that government recognizes the crisis. We've run out of money. And I keep saying once uh, the money runs out, the ideology runs out. And so you've seen government embrace the private sector more fully. You've seen government being more willing to partner with the private sector. And the electricity is a very good example. So I think there are elements where we're moving forward and hopefully they gain momentum. What is Stanlib's outlook for the country? So at the moment, we obviously are in an economic recovery after the COVID crisis that did cause a huge amount of damage. We think that recovery will continue over the next couple of years. Unfortunately, though, we are not convinced that the pace of that recovery is going to, at this stage, be fast enough. And what we measure there is how many jobs are we creating? So we need to create roughly 600,000 jobs a year to stay in touch with the population growth. That's how many people we're adding to the labor force on an annual basis. So use the 600,000 as a yardstick. So far since before COVID, we've lost one and a half million jobs. So that's a massive decline and we haven't regained those jobs. And in the meantime, 600,000 people have been added to the labor force. So what we realize is we've got to get this growth rate up probably around to five or 6% in order to start to add those 600,000 jobs a year. For the next couple of years, though, we think that uh, the reforms that are being put in place at the moment probably can lift the growth rate somewhere between 2 to 2.5%, maybe, if we're optimistic, 3% over the next three years. And that will no doubt be better than what we've had. In the last 10 years, we've grown at 1% and we've destroyed a lot of things.
things. So the outlook is getting better. The reforms are better. The policy direction is better. The management of the country, we think, is better. But we're still not at that point where we're really accelerating growth meaningfully and therefore making a big difference in people's lives in a very visible way. It all just feels like it's got to take a lot longer. Rolf, at the best of times, South Africa is a noisy place. Do we sometimes get lost in the headlines, perhaps uh, missing the forest for the trees? Thanks, Bongani. I think that uh, it all has to do with how realistic our expectations are and how realistic our expectations are has a lot to do with the extent to which we understand the depth of the problem that we have encountered. I mean, we have had nine wasted years where corruption was actually cemented across almost all government sectors except notably the judiciary that actually stood tall and pushed against that. But where are we now? I do believe that where we are, Bongani, is that those that actually proliferated corruption, they have been morally undermined. They have been morally isolated in our society. Even President Ramaphosa's administration, I think, recently, it has even been able to come up with some of a reshuffle in Parliament, Bongani, in the committees, showing that uh, there seem to be realignment. It is gradual, of course. It is not to people's liking because it's not as rapid as people want it. But once you get to appreciate the depth of the problem, you get to see that silver Melanie, Ralph mentions the judiciary. Certainly the rule of law has won the day, it would seem. But we've been resilient in other ways. Think of media freedom. We have withstood some of the toughest onslaughts we have faced. Absolutely, Bongani. I mean, I think what is sad for me is always that South Africa seems to be judged harsher than you would judge many of the developed world. And, you know, it's obviously linked into an Afro-pessimism that is held internationally, but also held domestically by our own investors. There is so much going for us still. You mentioned the judiciary, freedom of the press, the fact that our government is fundamentally a very deeply democratic society, the fact that constitutionality rules, that increasingly we have sort of policy certainty again. And I think all of that is absolutely crucial when you look in terms of a country's future and a country's stability. Interestingly enough for me, even the fact that we had these riots and unrest recently, the good thing that it showed through all of that was that the whole country did not go up in flames. It easily could have, but it didn't. And I think the fact that the social fabric held the way that communities got back involved and said, we are not allowing this country to burn down completely to the ground, I think is also a very good sign that despite the challenges that we faced in terms of these riots that the rest of the country actually held. Kevin, one of the questions people like me often ask is, how is this playing out with investors? We know investors say that's the division in the Department of Trade and Industry. Their job is to talk about this country as an attractive investment. How tough is that job? In other words, how much are investors moved by our pendulum swings? So South Africa is watched very closely by foreign investors investors, either people who have already committed money to this country or are considering investing. I think the best way to understand the mindset of the investor is to divide foreign investment into two components. The one is called foreign direct investment, and that's in essence where a foreigner invests in something very tangible in South Africa. Let's say they build a a factory. They arrive in South Africa, they bring their money, they build the factory, they use their expertise, they use local labor, they make something, and then in the the ideal world they export it. That's the best type of investment you can get into a country. And unfortunately, South Africa simply doesn't attract that for a whole range of reasons. 
One of which is a very simple thing. They're not sure if they're going to have electricity in order to invest. And then you can add on a multitude of other factors. And, and you can distill that down maybe into something called the ease of doing business. How easy is it to do business in South Africa? And South Africa, by international standards, is regarded as one of the more complicated places to do business. And that's unfortunate. The second part of foreign investment something called foreign portfolio investment. And that's where a foreigner brings their money and they simply invest in our stock market, they invest in our government bond market, and we don't really have a problem attracting that money. We actually get a reasonable amount of foreign portfolio investment, and you would say, thank goodness, it's the lifeblood of South Africa because we have to get constant capital inflows from the rest of the world in order to supplement our domestic savings, our low savings in this country. So foreigners, believe it or not, invest a significant amount into our stock market, a significant amount into our bond market and they get handsome returns as a result. And so it's not long-term investment. It's not committed to the fabric of this country, but it is vital foreign proceeds. Obviously, that foreign portfolio investment itself can be a little bit fickle at times, right? So if we have some sort of social unrest looting, that foreign investment will get skittish. If we change the Minister of Finance and we appoint somebody that's not appropriate, that money will get skittish. So that money watches very carefully what's going on in South Africa and reacts accordingly. The last thing I need to mention is that in South Africa, I think we watch the news events and we think in our minds that the foreigner is going to react very strongly to all of these news events. What I think we miss is that many of these foreigners invest in other messy emerging markets. They're investing in Brazil, in Turkey, in Russia, at the same time that they're investing in South Africa. And if you want to see messy countries, go to many of those. The news flow is horrendous in some of these countries. So it's invaluable to talk to a foreign investor who invests in emerging markets and ask them to put South Africa in that context. And then you hear a different perspective. You hear a perspective that says, you know what, South Africa's not too bad when you consider the competitive set. In South Africa, we tend to measure ourselves against the United States, the UK, parts of Europe. It's an unfair comparison. We're a messy emerging market, and as such, we do attract foreign investment. That speaks in many ways to how countries are evaluated. Ralph, if we talk about foreign direct investment and some of the hurdles in attracting it, that's local government. That's making sure municipalities have qualified people, aren't corrupt, can actually deliver services. It seems such an obvious thing to focus on. Why is government taking its eye off that ball? Uh, Bongan, that is beginning to have a very direct toll on foreign direct investment. I mean, uh, we have the story of a clover company having to pull out of Northwest because of the disruptions within municipalities. I mean, at times, myself and Kevin, we get to talk to other people who deal with this subject of investment and, and thereof. You'll hear that some of the companies are now considering the stability of municipalities, such as access to roads, such as water, electricity, as some of the issues that are becoming really risk premium, risk issues, as they are considering doing business. So those are basic issues. But I'll tell you something else, Bongani, that the problems are so basic, in my view. They are not even ideological. I mean, if you look at the level of inequality in South Africa, there is no appetite in South Africa for what one can say, what they are having in Venezuela, leftism, and so forth. If we deal with these problems, Bongani, if we deal with basic capacity in government, it will actually de-escalate tension in our society. 
It will make sure that young people are not prone to extremism in our society because if we continue with this basic capacity collapsing, not dealing with inequality, we will one day wake up with an extreme society where consensus is impossible. Melimi, many critics will point out that the governing party has been more than anything been a vehicle for patronage and that's why cadre deployment, for example, is such a problematic policy because instead of having qualified people, and I'll stick to local government for now, running municipalities, we have people who are principally there as part of that patronage network, that machine that is ever hungry, that needs to be fed, and that may at some point be in fact out of the control of the governing party. Yes. So, of course, the ANC would argue that this was a process of correcting the inequalities of the past and the racial discrepancies that were there in uh, under apartheid and to correct that. And they would also argue, as the president recently did at Zondo, that, of course, any political party will do that, will do that in some form. They will just not call it cadre development. The problem at local government level was, of course, that many of the people historically that went international and provincial government first, that that process sucked up most of their expertise and and then you were left with very little expertise at local government level, which came later. The problem is not so much that people are being deployed to various positions. It is the fact that they were deployed for the wrong reasons, for not being capable and efficient in their work and qualified to do the work, but rather because of certain loyalties to certain or factional interests in the ANC. I do believe that's now recognized, but the problem is, of course, the rot goes very deep and it will take time to correct that. The point is, though, that the willingness is there to correct it. And hopefully, with the intention and the firm resolve by certainly the president, at least, that hopefully that will gradually become a a better situation. Coming up later in this podcast. There's no doubt when you look at uh, climate change, when you look at global developments in the production of food, it's going to be a scarce resource going forward. And obviously, South Africa and and Sub-Saharan Africa is in the ideal position to do a hell of a lot more to supply the world with food and I think it's a potential uplift in the country. Your money can do all sorts of nice things for you. It can take you out for a lovely dinner or get you a fancy new bicycle. And while that's thoughtful, your money should be planning to take care of you in the future. Your money can do more with Stanlib's fixed income funds. Invest with more certainty at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib, imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Kevin, what makes for a winning nation? Are we a winning nation? And if not, what would it take from your point of view to become one? So from our perspective, no, we're not a winning nation. And the reason is, look at the unemployment rate. Start there. If you say to yourself, I want a successful economy, I want to live in a successful country, what does that really mean? And in my mind, what that means, first and foremost, is that everybody who wants a job has got a job. That might not be the job they ideally want, and it might not be the salary they think they deserve, but at least they've got gainful employment and they're able to make progress in their livelihoods. If you look at our unemployment at record highs, you look at the number of people unemployed, you look at young people unemployed, employed, struggling to get into the labor market. South Africa is a long way from that type of success. Obviously, you can point to a whole lot of historical reasons why that has occurred, and that's very valid. And you can point to an education system that has been far from ideal. 
But we've got to make way more progress in in a much more discerning way to try and get people to get their first job opportunity. What we know from the data is that once somebody's been employed, their chances of gaining further employment if they lose their job actually goes up very dramatically. So the problem right now is getting people their first job opportunity. And so in our mind, what you need to do much more emphatically is look at the education system and see how you can link the type of education we provide to what the business sector needs and in fact try and link them explicitly. In other words, business is aware of who's studying what in particular fields and there's a natural offtake from those individuals into that sector and therefore they can gain experience very quickly. So I think given our circumstances, we could be way more successful. We could make a bigger difference to employment. I just don't think that we are coming at it in the right direction and it probably means a radical change in this country. You've got to consider that the average age of people in South Africa is 24. Take a comparable number. The average age of people living in Europe is over 40. South Africa has a massive advantage relative to Europe. We've got a very large potential workforce. If you go to Japan and you tell Japanese people that the average age in South Africa is 24, they think it's wonderful. That's a massive opportunity. They would love that. They don't have young people entering their labor market. So we've got that advantage. The problem is we're not unlocking it because we're not getting young people productive into the workforce. We've got to concentrate on that. And if we don't, we can see from July in terms of the looting, the unrest, what's going to happen. So I don't think we're successful, but I think we have the means to be way more successful. How do we unlock that potential, Kevin, given the quality of our education system? And I want to throw this one at you as well. Africa is set to be, along with China, for example, as the next growth center of the world in the coming, let's say, two, three decades. We're not unique in terms of having a young population. So how do we tap into that potential given the system out of which our young people emerge from an education point of view? So clearly it's challenging. There are no easy solutions to all of this and it's clearly going to take a considerable amount of time, but you've got to start somewhere, right? And when you start to work on something called the population dividend or the demographic dividend and you apply that to Africa, the upside is just phenomenal and the upside potential in South Africa is phenomenal. And you would kind of look at sub-Saharan Africa as the next big thing. In other words, you saw what happened in, in China and the development there. You see currently what's happening in India. And it's very clear that at some point there's going to be a lot more focus on sub-Saharan Africa as an available workforce. So I think that that uh, is something that the continent and South Africa has to grasp fully. So there are two things that I would focus on. One is work out our education system more effectively. Don't focus on the academic qualification. Not everybody wants to study history and science, etc. Look at more practical, technical qualifications that get people employed and try and change the curriculum to make it more applicable for the skills that South Africa requires. And yes, that's going to take a long period of time, but let's start that process more fully. The second element of it is more short term, and that is that we've got to find a way for the business sector and the government to embrace each other and move forward together. The last 10 years have told us unequivocally that excluding the private sector from decision-making, from the process of investing, from infrastructure is not going to win the day. Draw the private sector in. The private sector is more than willing to engage.
stage. I think that's starting to occur now. We do it with electricity. Let's do it with water. Let's do it with sanitation. Let's do it with a whole range of sectors, not just South African airways and partial privatization. Draw the private sector in, partner with them, and I can promise you within a period of six months, 12 months, you'll start to notice a very visible difference in confidence and economic growth. Melanie, gaze into your crystal ball. There's a lot of talk about Europe, perhaps, being on a downward slide eventually because some of their key selling points are things like financial services and the banking system. Put AI into that picture and suddenly they're not so much at an advantage. The Middle East and all its conflicts with renewables and oil becoming less of a factor. There are opportunities for this continent if you think about renewables, if you think about wind, if you think about solar. What are some of the policy decisions you think this government needs to be making in anticipation of that future? So first of all, you mentioned renewables and economy, and I think that is one of the biggest opportunities that we have as South Africa. We're already the biggest uh, manufacturers or producers of renewable energy, and that will continue. So there is a massive investment opportunity there. Of course, what really stands us in very good stead in South Africa is that we've got excellent research, excellent data analysis, and excellent academic capacity here. And so there is a lot that stands us in good stead for this kind of investment. Of course, our financial sector is also very, very developed. And I, I know from being in when I was ambassador, but also working with international investors, that this is something that they always remark on, that it is a well-established fact, that this is a very attractive market in that respect for international investment. Kevin, let me bring you back into that conversation. There are opportunities for not just South Africa, but for the continent. What are some of the other policy choices we need to make in anticipation of the coming future? So I think there are a whole range of things. I think some of them we are focusing on, things like uh, agro-processing or further development of the agricultural sector. There's no doubt when you look at uh, climate change, when you look at global developments in the production of food, it's going to be a scarce resource going forward. And obviously South Africa and and Sub-Saharan Africa is in the ideal position to do a hell of a lot more to supply the world with food and I think it's a potential uplift in the country. The other area very clearly is tourism, not for the reason that you might think, in other words, that it brings uh, foreign money into this country, but it's a phenomenal employer of people. It's one of those unique sectors where you can start to really gain employment in terms of low middle skill services and it's I think in the South African context is a phenomenal way to absorb a huge number of people into the formal sector and start to give them a livelihood. So uh, certainly for me, the agriculture and the tourism sector would be top of mind. The third element, which I think we we keep saying we want to make progress on, but we make very little, and that is to find a way to take some of the mineral products that we produce and see if we can't add some value. Now, that's been a perpetual theme and we've mostly failed at that. But I think there are niche areas where we perhaps can make a little bit more gains and maybe highlight them as success stories. So in particularly in the jewelry industry, when I look at the design that I see in, in craft markets in this country, it is just phenomenal. If I see the work that is going on by people with very little means that are able to put together the f- most phenomenal crafts just using basically their bare hands, I think you've got to find a way to take that skill, that creativity, and turn it into something where you add in a very significant amount of value. And then beyond that, I think that South Africa, in terms of its strategic position in the world, still represents a vital part of transport routes, of telecommunications, 
migration routes as the gateway to the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. And I think specifically for South Africa, I would like to see us develop ourselves as much more of a transit hub for people to arrive, move through, similar to what Dubai is in the Middle East, similar to what Hong Kong is in the Far East. I think South Africa could play that role within sub-Saharan Africa quite easily. So, Kevin, we've looked at the South African political economy as such, good and bad. So what hero fund would best suit clients who want their money to bank on South Africa? So I think some of the dilemma that investors face is that when they look at the South African environment, particularly as it relates to government finances, it can feel messy. It can feel like government finances have slipped, the credit ratings have being downgraded, that we're not sure where corruption's going. Are we going to be able to eradicate it? Are we going to be able to collect enough tax revenue? And yet what I think gets missed in that discussion is that there's actually a brilliant opportunity to invest in the fixed interest range of funds. Now, fixed interest includes everything from investing in a money market fund all the way through to investing in a bond fund. So it's not as if you're only investing in government bonds. You can effectively invest in um, much more conservative conservative assets, be it money market or perhaps uh, investments in between those two. And what that does for you is it gives you exposure to assets that generate a regular and persistent income. And the level of that income way exceeds the inflation rate in this country and has done that for a considerable period of time. And so I think that um, while you've got this dilemma in your head that says that perhaps the country hasn't been run well uh, from a government point of view, investing in assets that are linked to government is actually a very good outcome. And so from our perspective, there are a range of assets within the fixed interest offering that I think uh, provide a very low risk environment, provide returns that are well in excess of inflation, and probably more importantly, provide a consistent range of returns. In summary, Kevin, then, what does the investor do with all of this information? Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride. That's right. So I think it's naive to believe that South Africa is suddenly going to settle down from a political perspective. It's going to remain fairly messy. Also, from an economic perspective, we can see the news flow is is erratic. We're still trying to get on top of the COVID crisis. We're still trying to understand the credit rating projection. We're also still trying to understand whether we're able to eradicate uh, corruption. And so There's a whole range of issues that are in the melting pot. And I think what that sets up is a concern about why would you invest in assets that are in some way linked to the government? And the answer is that some of these assets provide very solid, very predictable returns. And what we would urge people to do is have a look at something like a money market. It forms part of our fixed interest offering. And money market certainly gives you a better return than putting your money in the bank. And it's fairly low risk, extremely low risk, in fact, or perhaps move a little bit up the curve and go into something called an income fund, which is perhaps slightly more risky than a money market, generating you a better return. But again, the amount of risk you're taking on, I would regard as negligible. Or if you've got perhaps the appetite, go all the way to a bond fund where it's investing mostly in South African government bonds and the returns again well in excess of inflation. And so what we would urge people is, particularly if they are risk adverse, is look at a range of fixed interest funds and I think you'll be surprised at the type of return you can get there for very little risk.
invest for more certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib, imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider.